This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, this session will be a little bit different uh, because of the, the helpfulness of technology. Dr. Sander Lee, Dr. Tara Sander Lee, could not be with us in person, but lo and behold, she is able to uh, impart her wisdom and her experience and knowledge uh, via Zoom. So we have this camera set up so she can see you as you can wave to her, say hi, whatever you need to do. <laughs> And, and then she'll be speaking, and then, Lord willing, we'll have some time at the end where you can ask questions. Now, we have this set up so that you can just speak where you are, and we've tested it. It should be good to go. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's going to work really, really well. Well, guys, I really, really appreciate you coming. I'm just, my name is Thomas Ross. I'm just helping with the seminary uh, with running this, this wonderful conference this year. But it is my privilege to be able to be here and introduce Dr. Sander Lee. So Dr. Sandra Lee has been in, uh, she's been in her field for over 20 years doing research and as a scientist, has her biochemistry PhD, has been involved in all kinds of policy decisions and, all, and um, research for life science. And obviously you guys are here so you know something about her and what her topic is going to be on. So she's currently working with the Lozier Institute and that's just a tiny little snippets of uh, just her, her bio. I'm gonna let her touch on that maybe a little bit more. Uh, obviously she can talk to that more succinctly. So, um, but yeah, so without further ado, we'll just jump right in. Uh, Dr. Sander Lee, can you hear us? Can you see us okay? I can, can you hear me okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Great. Okay, great. All right. So go ahead and take it away. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you so much for all of you who came to this um, talk. I'm sorry it's a little bit different than what you expect. I, I wish I could be with you there in person for personal reasons. I can't be there. And then I also ended up coming down with I'm under the weather. So <laughs> my throat, uh, hopefully my throat will hold up for the rest of this talk. Um, so thank you, Thomas, for that introduction. Uh, the title of my talk is Death by Uncertainty, Faulty Prenatal Screens and Discrimination Abortion. As Thomas said, I did research for over 20 years um, in cell and molecular biology, running a lab, uh, running a clinical diagnostics lab um, at a children's hospital. And then the God, God really called me to step out of that and to um, focus on helping to help people understand just the sanctity of life that he has created. And that's taking me into areas that I never thought possible, um, just like even in policy decisions and helping legislators to understand the issue. So I'm thrilled to be with you here today to talk to you about this um, concerning issue about prenatal screening and, and discrimination abortion. And in general, you know, I wanna make it clear that prenatal diagnosis in, in and of itself is not bad. It's just what I'm going to talk to you about is the discrimination that a lot of these babies face once they receive a prenatal diagnosis. So let's jump right in. Um, just to give you a little bit of information, I, um, I have been with the Charlotte Lozier Institute um, for several years um, after leaving my uh, clinical position and research position. Um, I have been doing this policy work. Um, and we are, we, are, we are based in Arlington, Virginia. We're a science and statistics for life institute. Uh, the goal is to really educate um, the public and legislators so that we promote a deeper public understanding of the dignity of every human life that God has created. 
So I'm going to jump right into a fetal anomaly. Well, what is a fetal anomaly and why do we need to do a prenatal diagnosis to begin with? Well, a fetal anomaly is an unexpected condition in a baby that develops during pregnancy. And sometimes this, you will hear this referred to as a birth defect or a congenital disorder. And there are many different types of fetal anomalies. In fact, there are more than 4,000 that are known. Um, and there are some that are even still yet to be discovered. Um, and there are many different types and they can occur any different, at any stage of pregnancy. And some of them have a genetic cause and others do not. And for many, the cause is unknown. And so I, I pulled this infographic from the CDC website because I think it makes an important point that these are actually fairly common. They, um, so it accounts for about 3% of the live births that we see. And so this translate into, translates into about 120,000 babies that are born each year that will have some type of uh, congenital or birth defect. And it can range anywhere from being absolutely benign, um, nothing that you're going to, it's not going to require a lot of support, but there are going to be some that are require some pretty significant support. We're going to talk through that. So because some require significant support, the goal is to um, try to diagnose these disorders as early as possible. And so I just want to make sure we're on the same page because I'm going to be throwing out the term diagnosis quite a bit. So Webster's Dictionary just um, defines diagnosis as the art or act of identifying a disease from its sign and symptoms. So what's been happening is that the, the goal has been then to diagnose before birth as early as possible so that parents are better prepared and can prepare. Um, and if there are any interventions that can be done either inside the womb or outside the womb, that they can be aware of these options. And so some of these diagnoses can happen um, mostly around like 20 weeks during the routine ultrasound scan at 20 weeks, but they can occur much earlier and sometimes as early as 10 weeks in, in various forms of screening. Um, and I'm going to talk to you about those um, specifically looking for DNA, um, screening the baby's DNA to see if they have any um, potential fetal anomalies or risk of fetal anomalies. So my point is that there's just there's multiple ways to, to screen and try to diagnose these babies. And what's becoming really clear is that advances in diagnostic tools within the last 50 years have really allowed more and more birth defects to be diagnosed before birth. Many of these are diagnosed by ultrasound, some by fetal MRI, and others by genetic testing. And um, these methods have just gotten so much more advanced. I just want to touch on that a little bit. So if we look at ultrasound alone, this is back in the 1960s and 70s. These are images from publications um, in which the, the researchers were trying to figure out how to diagnose these birth defects during this time. And they were using ultrasound. You can see how ultrasound, you could barely pick out the head of an infant or I mean of a baby, you know, it's very grainy black and white dots. Um, and prenatal diagnosis by ultrasound really began in the 70s with the diagnosis of anencephaly, which is which the baby's brain does not fully develop. And it was then followed in 1975 with the diagnosis of spina bifida. And what I want to point out is that this paper that I show you here, ultrasound and the diagnosis of spina bifida, that the di once the baby was diagnosed, that in these earlier ones, that they, once the baby realized they found this, then the babies were aborted. So the diagnosis resulted in an elective termination of pregnancy or an abortion. So you can see very early on as, as they, the, the, the advancements started to make it possible for them to detect these disorders, that then the baby was 
almost immediately seen as, well, we're going to eliminate, um, oops, sorry, I changed my slide. Um, it, it became seen as abortion is seen as then the treatment for the disease. Well, we, we detected a disease, now we're going to abort the baby and get rid of disease. And so you can see very early on that just discrimination started, um, really considered that these babies were somehow less than those that didn't have a prenatal diagnosis. But I want to show you that just over the years, this is now the current ultrasound that we have with fetal MRI, ultrasound. I mean, scientific advancements like ultrasound now allow us to see the baby like never before. So we can not only see the humanity of the unborn child. I mean, we know that you can actually see the baby suck his or her thumb inside the womb as early as 15 weeks. It's just remarkable. But what this also allows us to do is to identify more and more structural anomalies as well. But it's also, there are limitations. You can't detect everything. And you also can't predict the outcome for every baby. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, invasive prenatal testing. Fetal anomalies that have a known genetic cause can also, um, you can use what's called invasive prenatal testing to, uh, to identify, to, to basically, um, um, you basically collect a piece of uh, tissue from the pregnancy and then you isolate the DNA, and then you you determine you do a test to determine if the baby has a specific disorder. And so I'm talking specifically about amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling. In the case of amniocentesis, there's actually amniotic fluid is withdrawn for analysis, and they usually do this between 16 and 18 weeks gestation. Um, and then chorionic villus sampling can be done a little bit earlier, as early as like 10 and 12 weeks. And that's where they take a sample of cells from the, what's called the chorionic villi or the placenta. The placenta. And what I want to point out is that both of these invasive methods, they do carry a risk of miscarriage. And because of that, then further advancements um, led to what's called this non-invasive prenatal screen. Also, as you'll hear this as referred to as NIPS, or NIPT, and so this is an even earlier method that is used in pregnancy um, before even 10 weeks sometimes in order to genetically screen for babies that might have the presence or absence of a fetal anomaly. Basically what it does is it takes, you take the mother's blood because the, the baby's DNA it starts to circulate within the mother's bloodstream very early on and you can actually then collect the mother's blood and then screen for the baby's DNA. Um, and it's a very non-invasive way of doing a, a, a screen. But what's really important is that, um, that this screen was meant to be a way to just say, okay, we're going to avoid these invasive amniocentesis and chorionic villus sampling invasive methods so that we don't put the baby at risk. Um, but I'm gonna to talk to you about how that is actually though, a lot of women are, um, are going and doing this screen for order disorders such as trisomy disorders, like Down syndrome. So what I'm showing you here is the, what's called a karyotype. It's all the chromosomes for the baby. And, and what we know is that when, um, when a human being comes into existence, half the DNA is from mom and half the DNA is from dad. And so in most circumstances, you're going to have one chromosome from mom and one chromosome for dad. Well, in the case of this um, baby with Down syndrome, they have an extra chromosome 21. And so with advancements in prenatal diagnosis, as in, they've been able to try to find ways to diagnose um, Down syndrome earlier and earlier. And so the screening tool has been one of the most popular methods used to try to screen all women, whether they're low risk or high risk of even carrying a baby with Down syndrome, um, using that non-invasive, that NIH, 
method, that NIPT or NIPS. Um, but what's really interesting is that, like, you know, with advancements has also come incredible care for these babies with Down syndrome. And we know that the average life expectancy for babies with Down syndrome is now in the 60s and rising. And so it's just remarkable how even, you know, just advancements have taken us so far. But what's important to understand is that the risk of having a baby with Down syndrome increases as a woman ages. So women older than 35 are often encouraged to have prenatal genetic testing done on their unborn babies. And the, this was how it was originally seen. Okay, we're gonna offer now this screen to mothers that are at advanced maternal age. But things have shifted um, in that not just women that are, just, uh, that are at high risk are not the only ones that are screened. Now all women, whether they are at low risk or high risk, receive this NIPS screen, and which can happen after nine weeks. And, and then what they're supposed to do is that if they receive a positive screening result, that they should be confirmed by either by a more invasive test, by a CVS or amniocentesis. But what's happening is a lot of these women are just receiving the screen and not getting confirmation. And why is that a problem? It's because this screen that is done, the one where you take a blood sample from the mom and look for the baby's DNA, that screen is not diagnostic. That means that it is not gonna have the absolute certainty that that baby actually has that disorder. It only determines if a baby has a risk of having that disorder. And so there are actually significant chance that the screening result is wrong. And so what we're seeing is that for women that are screened to determine whether they have a risk of having a baby with Down syndrome, there's what's called a false positive rate of greater than 50%, meaning that over 50% over the time, that result is gonna be wrong. And that's really scary because a lot of these women are getting this positive result that their baby, it might be at risk of Down syndrome and they're not getting the confirmatory invasive test to confirm it. And so often they're making decisions about what to do based on this correct information. And these, these false positives are even worse for rare disorders. If you go onto some of these uh, companies' websites, the screen for these disorders, you can clearly see that some of these really rare disorders like Prader-Willi or Angelman syndrome, they can have, they can be wrong over 85 to 95% of the time. It's, it's really scary. Um, so what's happening is a lot of these women that are feeling pressured to abort, similar to what we saw even back in the 70s, once the baby is diagnosed or, you know, there's even a risk of anything possibly being done with the, with the there's any risk of anything wrong with the baby, that some of these healthy babies are being aborted. Um, and we know that, you know, the, the New York Times actually brought this to our attention last year, which was kind of surprising um, that New York Times would do this. But they actually had this really great article that warned of the rare disorders and how a lot of these prenatal tests are wrong. But they didn't get into the um, they often say that, like, well, Down syndrome is a really accurate screening, um, but it's actually not. Like I said before, actually, when you screen for women at low risk, there is actually even a really high chance that it's wrong as well. So you have to be really careful. But what we're seeing is that no matter whether the baby received a, a, a wrong result or a right result, what we are seeing in our culture right now is that babies that receive any type of prenatal diagnosis, whether it's even if they're at risk or if it's a confirmed diagnosis, there is this like perception and discrimination that's happening that a lot of these babies are being terminated simply because they have this prenatal diagnosis. I'm not gonna get into, there's a lot of 
abortions that are happening from a baby's just because of their sex or, the, um, or their race as well, but we're not going to get into that. For the purposes of this talk today, I'm going to talk about just how these babies that receive a prenatal diagnosis are often discriminated against. There's also this whole area of science in which through in vitro fertilization, parents are avoiding having a child that carries a risk of disease. And again, for the purposes of the time of this talk, I can't get into that, but I'm happy to answer questions about that. But we see that this is really happening in the real world. That um, I know this is a big, this is a, a paper that um, was published. And it is a paper from what's um, by this um, late term abortion provider in Boulder, Colorado called Warren Hearn. And what he does in this paper is he breaks down the number, breaks down, you know, these women came in, over a thousand women came in to have an abortion within their second and third trimester. And what he wrote this paper about to say, well, why did they have this abortion? What was the baby diagnosed with before birth that led to them making this decision? So he then basically put them, you know, he, he took, he, he determined, he basically came up with all these charts. And anytime he saw one where a mom uh, decided to abort based on Down syndrome or trisomy 21, you know, they got a checkbox. And what we can see is that of these over a thousand women that requested a termination of pregnancy, a lot of them were for a genetic disorder such as Down syndrome, um, a fetal anomaly that had no genetic reason, um, and just and those where there was fetal demise um, over 20 years. And this was over the course of 20 years that they did this study. And we're finding that these abortions happen between 12 and 39 weeks. Um, and what was interesting is that when they, when he looked at this, nearly 30% of the abortions were for trisomy disorders like Down syndrome, where the baby has just one extra chromosome. There's other trisomy disorders called trisomy 13 and 18, in which they have, instead of an extra 21 chromosome like Down syndrome, they have an extra 13 chromosome or an extra 18. And so what we see is over 30, nearly 30% 30 of these were for reasons of just because these babies had these trisomy disorders. And there were also cases that were, I mean, there's a long laundry list of why these women, what the prenatal diagnosis was, but some of them were for diagnoses like dwarf, dwarfism and cleft lip, and about 10% were for neural tube disorders um, like spina bifida. And what we're seeing is that this trend in um, women that once they receive, or families, once they receive this prenatal diagnosis, that they are they are receiving pressure to have to abort these babies. And this is becoming an issue, not just in the United States. And we're seeing an overall declining trend in birth rates for the total Down syndrome population. The abortion rate in the United Kingdom is, is 92%. Western Australia, 93%. Ireland, 70%. In the US, once a baby receives a prenatal diagnosis, they're, on average, 67% of those babies are going to be aborted. And that's reducing our population, the Down syndrome population. And in Iceland and Denmark, they've virtually eliminated the Down syndrome population. I'm sure you've heard of those um, statistics already. Um, but I want to now pivot to like there's this death by uncertainty, like with false positives. But there is also a bigger problem here for these disorders, especially trisomy 13 and 18. I mean, when it comes to Down syndrome, we know that these babies are leading many of them are leading healthy lives. Yes, there is medical care that's gonna be needed. But like I said, the expect, life expectancy for them is into the 60s. But when we, when we see, but we are seeing something unique with babies that are receiving a trisomy 13 and 18 diagnosis. 
and that the, the medical team that takes care of these families, they don't see the intrinsic value in these lives. And so some of them are definitely aborted, but we're seeing another issue in that they're just kind of being abandoned and left to die if the parents decide to continue the pregnancy. So I just want to talk to you about this paper was published in um, 2012, and this discusses the experience of families with children with trisomy 13 and 18. They surveyed 332 families that received the diagnosis, and they were told this is going to be incompatible with life. This baby would live a life of suffering. This baby would be a vegetable. It would ruin their family. And when you look at actually these families that received all this, that received this diagnosis, and then they decided still to keep the baby, 79 were still living, and the median age of them was four years. And 97% of the families say that the child is happy and it definitely enriched their family. So what we're seeing, and I think what's happening is that um, there's this perception and discrimination happening that even in families that decide to keep their babies, and there's so much variability in the, di in the diagnosis and the outcomes that families often receive this information that your baby's gonna die, they're gonna suffer, they call it life limiting, fatal, but what they're not hearing is the real data that shows that some babies diagnosed with trisomy 13 and 18 might live one year, five years, 10 years, even 30 years in some cases, depending on the type and severity of the condition. So we see in this um, other paper that parents talk about, um, you know, the type of information they received once they received this diagnosis. So 45% received a diagnosis, so they put them into categories. Some families received, wanted to know if their baby had this disorder, other parents did not. Those that received the diagnosis, the majority of them said, you know what, I wanna keep the baby, I just wanna meet my child alive, take the child home and be a family. But 100% of these parents report that their providers were against any interventions to prolong their life once they were born. And then again, the majority were pressured to terminate. And they were told things like, you know, you would never find a doctor to treat her. We would be doing her a favor by saving her from suffering. So these parents feel a lot of fear, pressure to abort. And then they're also, if they decide to keep the baby, some of these babies are being withheld care. And this is real data showing this, that Babies live longer when they receive basic medical intervention that is offered immediately after birth. And that, so, whoops, sorry, whoops. Um, so what you see here, and I know it's kind of hard maybe on the thing, but if you look just even in this very last column, lived greater than one year. Those that received a prenatal diagnosis, only 19% of them lived greater than a year. Compare that to those that received a diagnosis after birth, and they and greater than 50 over 50% of them lived greater than a year. So what we're seeing is that the intrinsic value in all lives does not seem to once a prenatal diagnosis is received does not seem to be considered the same by all by the medical team. So what's happening is that a lot of these children are living longer when they receive medical care but they're not all offered that care. And in many cases sometimes when they receive this prenatal diagnosis they're, they're actually just given a comfortable death and abandoned and not treated like all the other children um, that whether they have a diagnosis or not. And so it's just, it's really telling. It's, there's a lot here to unpack, but it's just, we're seeing that a lot of these parents and they don't know how to manage, they don't know what to do because 
They don't, they're not, all they're hearing is that their baby is going to die and they can't be, and they can't be taken care of, but they're not seeing really exciting data like this, like from published in JAMA that shows that among children born with trisomy 13 or 18, that yes, mortality is an outcome for sure, but 10 to 13% have survived 10 years and that among children who underwent surgical intervention right after birth, the one-year survival was high. So a lot of times these parents are hearing that it's just going to be a fatal disorder. They might as well just abort the baby. Um, and if anything, yes, life limiting, but it's hardly lethal or incompatible with life 100% of the time. And there's also um, a study like this that shows that babies with trisomy 13, 18, who have a specific type of heart defect, living even longer when they receive the necessary medical care to surgically repair the heart defect. So this study found that those patients that had trisomy 13 or 18 and then received the right surgery, they lived an average of 32 years. Some of them lived, and that ranged from 11 to 53 years of age. So some of these kids, if they received the right intervention, they lived up to 53 years of age. And so parents are just not hearing about this information and they don't know how to navigate the system. And so there's this beautiful story. They're also not hearing about stories like this, like Nora Rose, who her parents have a Facebook page that I encourage you to go to. They call her the trisomy 13 warrior. And what they talk about, and if you just go through this, you hear how the parents make it clear, like, there are so many things that are happening for a baby girl that we thought they would we would never see. Like they explain how their daughter is now six weeks, six years old in kindergarten, and she's standing independently at a desk at school. And so I just want to read what they say here. They say, our biggest prayer for Nora when we found out about her diagnosis was just to meet her and tell her how much we loved her. We had no idea we would have six, almost seven years. We knew she would have physical difficulties, but didn't know if she would ever pull up her stand. We also didn't know if she would graduate from homebound school to in-person school. So many things to be thankful for and to not take for granted. God has worked so many miracles in this little girl's life and he's not finished yet. And I think that's, that's where the hope is. So I think a lot of these parents are hearing just the worst case scenario, but they're not hearing the hope that is possible with their baby um, given the right care and a medical team that really cares and wants to help that baby survive. And they're also not hearing of in utero treatment and the bill and the fact that some of these some of these prenatal diagnoses, such as spina bifida, can actually, there is a treatment option before birth. And so there's just much education to be had. And so in this case with spina bifida, you might remember that this was one of the very first um, disorders to be diagnosed back in the 70s, and then the baby was aborted. Well, we're seeing now that there is this ability to go into the womb and that um, because the, the spine is basically exposed in the sac and protrudes through the body wall, they need to close up that 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 wound and repair it. And so right now though, in many states, it is absolutely still legal to abort these babies once uh, a family has found that their baby has um, spina bifida. And yet there is a surgery that can be done to correct this um, if done at the right time. And so actually saving tiny babies inside the womb before birth has just really exploded. So we've written a paper on this, the perinatal revolution. I'm not gonna go into great detail on this, but I just wanna say that, you know, 
it, these are operations performed in the mother's womb to correct these life-threatening malformations. And it is a reality. They, and I, I show you this picture from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia because that's the average size of the organ operated on during fetal surgery is just a half an inch. So it's just remarkable. I'm just gonna take you through a couple of just examples of this. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has seen this expand dramatically over the years. In the 25 years that they've been doing fetal surgery, you can see their first fetal family reunion in 1997 where there were just a few families to celebrate. Now, last year, their reunion was at the zoo because they had thousands of families there to celebrate all of these fetal surgeries that have, been occur that have occurred. We see this for twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, which is a threatening condition for babies caused by abnormal connections in blood flow between identical twins who share one placenta. And if left untreated, the disease can be fatal, but this minimally invasive surgery uses re these really small instruments that just you just do an incision in the mother's um, abdomen, and then you can go through the uterus and actually um, do this life-saving surgery for these babies that has actually been successful as early as 15 weeks. It's remarkable. We see that if a, a baby has a particular type of congenital heart defect, that if fatal, if not treated, can be delicately corrected before birth using what's called balloon dilation um, to widen the severely narrowed aortic valve and opening the baby's tiny heart in order to improve blood flow. And so here's the first, um, the um, at Children's Hospital, they did the first successful surgery, um, and they just show him here now years later now as a baseball player. And then we see that in Cleveland Clinic, they performed a life-saving fetal surgery just a couple years ago to remove a rare heart tumor. Um, and I just want to show you here, you can see the baby's hand just reaching out. You can see that during the surgery. And then they put the baby back in, and then the baby continues to develop inside the womb, and then basically twice born. Um, and we need that seeing this in other procedure. Um, the fetal surgeons actually recently repaired a rare fetal blood disorder called vein of gallon malformation that was causing severe abnormal blood flow in the baby's brain. And so this baby had a really high risk of heart failure and brain injury. And so they were able to go in and repair this um, um, on the baby before, and so that it wasn't fatal and that the baby then would be born. It, it's just remarkable. And there's also these other disorders in which a mother's own stem cells can actually be used to help to save her baby. And so for like conditions such as alpha thalassemia and other blood disorders. So there's just so many advancements that are being made. And so I just want to review a little bit. I know I've kind of thrown a lot at you, but I want to review here. And I, I put two pictures up here of our scholars. These are um, physicians that are practicing physicians, they're neonatologists, they see these babies every day, and they are on the ground taking care of these babies and helping the families to understand what type of care is needed. Um, but what's clear is that once a diagnosis is received, they explain how there's much pain and grief and obviously concern for the baby. They want the baby to get help. These are babies that are really wanted and they, they don't want the pressure to abort. They wanna know what their options are and they don't want to just be abandoned. They want them to receive whatever care is available. And so it's, and it's, it's important that they receive that um, a maternal fetal medicine care team that is going to really walk through them and help them coordinate all the care that they is possible and not just pressure them to abort. And so it's, it's also important to help understand that it is often impossible to know exactly what support a baby will need until after birth. So that's why it's so important to consider, let them know of all life affirming options, not just abortion. 
And that because babies, there's going to be a different, various different outcomes. Babies may have few complications, require little support. They might have serious congenital complications that need considerable support. And again, as I mentioned earlier, some babies in utero surgery might be a real option. And so, but regardless of what the diagnosis, all babies are deserving of excellent medical care and they need help navigating the system. And so um, that's why there are now um, life-affirming organizations like Be Not Afraid that help provide the, the support early on in the journey once a family has received a prenatal diagnosis and they help the family navigate all of those, you know, really difficult um, decisions and understanding all of the different treatment options that might be available depending on the diagnosis. And it's important that you know, they understand that each journey of the baby with a fetal anomaly is unique and unlike any other. So every patient, every patient and family deserves special care. Um, so I just put this up here because if you know, if you are a parent or you know someone that's looking for support, they've received a prenatal diagnosis, um, you can go to this website. It's Be Not Afraid. They are not currently offering direct support right now because they are training people around the country to do what they do, but they will connect you with one of the organizations that they where they have trained who are providing Be Not Afraid modeling services. And so I just encourage you to go there to check it out. We have also been working with Be Not Afraid um, and Heartbeat International and her plan um, to develop this website called prenataldiagnosis.org. I encourage you to check it out. It's, it provides information, you know, just basic information about um, prenatal diagnosis, but then what are some of the options that are available? And in addition to helping to provide resources for family like these websites, we also go into the states and testify and help to educate legislators. Um, and why is this important right now? It's because right now in the states, since Roe was overturned, yes, states can now reach consensus and decide where do they, do they want to place limits on abortion? And if they do, where is that going to lie? And so I'm showing you here this website, it's called Lifesaving Laws, and you can go and see where these states have reached consensus. There are many states that are not putting any limits on abortion and allow abortion up to the point of birth. There are some states that are allowing um, restrictions, like once a heartbeat is detected or at 15 weeks. But why I bring this up is because some states are saying, okay, we're going to put a limit on abortion, but we're going to allow for what's called fetal anomaly exceptions. That means that at any point during pregnancy, if a baby receives a prenatal diagnosis, that, that family can abort that baby. And so that's where we're going to see these, like they're going to make these, these exceptions are being made. And so even though they're setting limits on abortion, babies that receive this diagnosis are really being discriminated against saying that, but it's okay, we can kill these babies. And so we're also creating awareness and education. Um, we just came out with this op-ed um, opinion piece um, in Newsweek. I encourage you to take a look. We talk about all these miraculous advances that, it hap that have happened. And, um, you know, specifically we talk about the fetal surgeries that, that are available. But I just want to end just in saying, you know, in the end, no matter what the diagnosis is that a baby receives or whether or not it's right or wrong, that every child has undeniable purpose and meaning regardless of abilities or how long he or she lives. So the intrinsic worth of a person is not governed by their capacity to do certain things. So even though receiving a prenatal diagnosis can be very traumatizing, every family and their baby should be properly informed, 
nurtured, offered excellent medical care, and treated with love and dignity during every step of the way on this prenatal diagnosis journey. And I just end with these verses from scripture, from Exodus, when God said to Moses, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It is God that created these little ones, and they should, they should be receiving the exact same dignity as every other person. And also and a reminder from 1 Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so I'll just end there and happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you. Um, Dr. Sandra Lee, I guess I have one question. You had mentioned that um, the prenatal screening was an option in the past. And then once we determined that we could find out quite a bit from the blood work of the mother, did you make, just a clarification, did you say that now every mother gets that prenatal screening just as part of their natural, um, just, I don't know, right. medical, medical care during pregnancy? Yeah, so the, the purpose of that screen was really meant to be only for women at the highest risk, like women of advanced maternal age, or they knew that there was some type of, you know, inherited disorder or something. It was mostly women at higher risk that were over the age of 35. That was initially how it was supposed to be. So to minimize how many women were screened. And then they were only, and then if they received a positive result, then they would be the ones that would get the confirmation by the more invasive screen. But now what's happening is all these professional societies are coming forward and they are on record saying all women, regardless of whether they're low risk or high risk, should receive this screen. And so that's why they are, and a lot of women um, are not going the next step of getting the confirmatory testing or even waiting until after birth. That's the other thing I wanna mention because there's no, a lot of these trisomy disorders like for Down syndrome, trisomy 18 and 13, there are there is no treatment that can be done inside the womb. So there's no reason why a parent can't wait until after birth and then have the test done. But yes, you're right. So what's happening is that now all women <clears throat> are being recommended that they receive this initial screen. to follow up with that um, very similar question um, because I've had three babies in the last four years and it's never been required to do that screen but um, are, is it anywhere where it's still being done even if like I said no I don't want you to do that screening I mean I still have blood work that I get done during those appointments is it somehow still happening behind my back yeah so um, I have not read of any uh, situations like that. Um, you're right. You should, every woman should receive informed consent and it's still a decision that they get to make. They are recommended by all these societies to have it done. But you're right. At the end of the day, a woman can say, no, I don't want this. I have heard of other people. I have heard one of my colleagues, like I said, who is affiliate, um, who's through Heartbeat International, who's been working with us on that prenatal diagnosis website, that he has heard stories where when they've collected blood that they've actually gone ahead and done the test without the permission. I don't think that's common. I'll, I'll be, I'll tell you that honestly, I don't think it's common. Um, I can tell you though, even in my own situation, I was a mother of advanced maternal age. When I was pregnant with my son, I told them I didn't want any genetic screening. I didn't even want the, um, I didn't even want the, um, 
you know, the nucleus, the, the nuchal translucency measurement done. I didn't even want that done. And, but even when I was there having um, a scan done, the nurse, oh, I see that you don't want to know, you know, the result of this. And then she just kind of like, she couldn't help herself. And she just said, but everything looks okay. So don't worry about it. <laughs> and so I just, I feel like there are, there's definitely this perception within the medical community that, well, why wouldn't you want to have this information if you could? Um, but yeah, I don't think it's happening a lot behind people's backs, but I think there's pressure. Um, another question, um, when you were talking here at the end about the laws um, and the terminology of uh, states putting on limits, um, is that so in some of that, if these diagnoses, is it something that is actually diagnosed, then they're giving them the option to abort, or is it just if there is an at-risk? Is that which terminal, like what word is being used there? Yeah, that's a great question. So it actually depends on the state. And so that's why, like I mentioned, our two scholars, Dr. McCaffrey and Dr. Perucci, because they're on the ground, they're helping legislators to understand this, that if you create it to be too broad, some of them are really broad, like any risk, you know, or diagnosis. So some are very vague. Um, they're trying to, the goal is to not have any fetal anomaly exception. That's the goal. But we're looking, we're helping legislators to understand the language and how critical it is that if it's not phrased correctly, that it literally could be a death sentence for any baby that even carries a risk and hasn't received confirmation. So every state is going to look different. You have to actually go into the state. And if you go to that life-saving laws, you can, um, website that I showed you, you can click on each state and find out if there's a fetal anomaly exception. Um, and if you have a specific question, like I can tell you for North Carolina, North Carolina, like we worked really closely with legislators because initially when that fetal anomaly exception was was proposed, it was going to be horrible, horrible. And so we, we had to work with them to try to understand, no, you can't have this type of language. It's just, it, you're gonna end up, too many babies are gonna be aborted without any um, condemnation. So it's, it's a great question. All right, well, I think that's about time. Um, once again, just thank you so much, Dr. Sandra Lee, for coming and presenting. Uh, just as a personal testimony, one of our students in our one-year program uh, did get diagnosed with uh, Down syndrome in utero. Uh, the parents said, nope, don't care. We're going to have the baby anyway. And lo and behold, not Down syndrome. So a perfect example. And that's the first time I ever heard of that. And now being clarified and confirmed with all the research you provided here, it's, yeah, it's startling, but... Well, anyway, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, it. Thank, thank you for sharing that. That's not that's not a um, uncommon thing. When I was testifying in the states, you have families going up and testifying exactly that what happened to them that they received a wrong diagnosis and their baby is fine. So thank you for sharing that. Though it's just further confirmation. <laughs> so thank you, everybody. Thank you. All right. Good day. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. 
For information, please visit shepherds360.org.